Amen. Church, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to ask you to turn and find your way in John to John 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's a paperbacks under the uh, seat in front of you, most likely, and uh, we take you, uh, ask you to take good use of that this morning. We're going to be in chapter 16 of John, uh, verse 16, and we're going to study all the way down through, chap, uh, through verse 33 this morning. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. It says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again... A little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will see me and a little while you will see me. You will not see me and you will, a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by, the, by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while you will not see me, and, a little, and again, a little while you will see me? Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, and your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she, will, she has sorrow because her, of the hour he has come, her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that the human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not, and I do not say to you that I will, I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have delivered and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving and, the, and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now we see you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you um, know all things and that do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. Well, we are back at it this morning. Again, let me extend my welcome to those who are guests here this morning. We're glad you're here. Um, the pattern of how we handle the word of God at Grace Church is what we call expositional preaching. We say this from time to time because expositional preaching is not topical preaching. It's not uh, a kind of preaching that's just there to um, get you, to manipulate you, but it's a type of preaching we believe is faithful to the central nature and central message of the scriptures, which is to show us three things. One, that we would see God and His ways. Two, that we would see ourselves honestly. And three, that we would see Jesus. That's the nature of expositional preaching. That we would be, our hearts would be warmed by these realities. And that we would be warmed by them each and every week as we gather. 
That's why we believe very strongly in the Lord's Day gathering here at Grace Church, that you cannot replace it. We should not replace it. And as it were, it is in God's kind providence that in these days, as we're kind of getting close to kind of finishing out our study in John's gospel, that, we, that, that it orders nicely with the, what many would call the traditional church calendar. As we're kind of leaning into Easter, uh, we don't do Lent here at Grace Church. Um, it's not something that we find ourselves finding a lot of meaning in that, but it is certainly a, a time when some churches will set aside a calendar to, to reflect extensively on the death of Jesus uh, of course, and of course, the resurrection of Jesus leading all the way up to Easter. Um, but it is kind of a wonderful providence that we're in that right now, in this moment, in these months, in these weeks leading out. We only got a few more weeks here. We hope to have it done by the end of April, our entire study. And so what's going to happen, not really starting today, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to be kind of moving into like a mini series within a series of John that's going to be looking more intently at those last hours of Jesus, because it's going to really help us see. And so in, on, when we get to John 18 in, at the beginning of April, that's going to really be kind of moving in that direction. And I bring notice to this to you this morning um, because of two reasons. One, that you would, it would provoke mindfulness in us as a people of God, that though we don't have to celebrate special holidays and special seasons and observe special things because we have everything fulfilled for us in Christ, but we can take notice of these things in a devotional way and spend our time the private worship and our time of family worship considering the, the, and reflecting deeply on the death of Christ and, of course, his resurrection as we lead up to Sunday, the Easter Sunday, that is. The second reason I tell you this is because that's what we've been in these last few chapters is we're really looking at the last few days, the last days of Jesus, and we're reflecting upon these matters of how he's prepar, uh, pre- preparing his disciples, excuse me, for what is to come. And namely that what is coming, and we're going to see this very, very clearly this morning, is coming is his ultimate arrest, his trial, his torture, all that's coming in chapter 18. All of this is coming and he's preparing them for that day so that they would not be caught off guard and that they would be ready to understand all of what's happening in terms of his death and his ultimately his resurrection. Now, we go there because in the church, in the historic Christian church, we herald unequivocally this victorious message of the gospel. That is everything it is to be Christian. There is nothing else. There's no other side issues. There is no other um, things that would, uh, we want to, to, to fill up our attention to. We don't ever want the church to be pawns in some other game. We want to be always and ever focused on this central reality of the death-destroying, sin-conquering gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we are about, and it's what we will always be about. But even as we share, and even as we herald this death-destroying, victorious, in some sense triumphant message, we must remember that that message comes with a cost. And that cost, as Jesus says in John chapter 14, is that when we follow Jesus, we also take up our cross, right? And there is a cost to following Jesus, and, and, it, and it doesn't, and it's going it's to hurt, it's going to be painful for this. That, that the following Jesus doesn't come with any light or inconsequential cost for us. There's always something that we must consider in, in relationship to following Jesus. And I think we all see this today as much as the world it continues to move and move further and further um, in obstinance to the kingdom of God. And this cost 
taking and bearing the cross of Christ will bring us face to face with life's greatest moments of despair, life's greatest moments of loneliness, isolation, sorrow, and suffering. And this sorrow, though temporary, amen, is still very much a companion that goes with true followers of Christ all the way through this life. And I know that's not a population for many Christians. In the general, we call it maybe uh, popular evangelical world, we, we like a triumphant message and we don't like the notion of suffering. We don't like that. We, we want everything to be happy and glossy. We want everything to be easy believism in some sense. And, and we know as people who study the Bible very, very seriously that that's just not the Christian life at all. It doesn't. Um, it, it doesn't shade us away from the fact that there's a deep cost of following Jesus. It doesn't. It doesn't protect us from these things. Reading the Bible honestly doesn't. And there's no virtue in a kind of Christian life that tries to shade ourselves or to protect ourselves from pain, sorrow, and suffering. Rather, the true Christian life, as we'll see in this text today, is to embrace both the glory of the cross and resurrection that we have in Jesus, while also embracing the, the, the suffering and the sorrow that this life has for us as we wait upon Jesus in the full arc of his work of redemption. We can't have one without the other. It's just going to be the way things are. We don't go out here begging for suffering, of course. We don't go out here looking for suffering, but we just know that it's part of what it means to be the people of God. And it's through this prism, you and I, as we look through this prism of suffering and sorrow, that we see more clearly the brilliance of God is God's glory. And we see more clearly and experience more clearly the, the communion we have with God. And we, and, we, and we find a deeper satisfaction in the work of God through Jesus on the cross. Like if you want to have a deeper relationship, a, a, a deeper communion, a richer communion with God, it's going to come through the prism of suffering and sorrow. And so this morning, my, the main idea of what we're going to study this morning from this text, hopefully it's extremely as simple as I possibly could state it, is this. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death through his cross and resurrection, we will see joy rise from the ashes of our sorrow through an unfettered union with God in heaven. I'll say that one more time because I want you to make sure you see all those pieces because we're going to really unpack those things today. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death through the cross of his cross and resurrection, we will see joy rise from the ashes of our sorrow through an unfettered union with our God in heaven. Amen. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at three things from this text this morning, three headings, if you will. One is our sorrow will give way to joy. Amen? It's going to be a blessed day. It already has. Secondly, we'll see our access to God will not be denied, cannot be denied. And third, we will see our peace is sure because Christ has conquered the world. Amen. I think it's hopefully just a plain reading of the text and to think about these things well this morning. So let's look at that first idea. Our sorrow will give way to joy. I know there are people in this room who are sorrowful this morning. You are suffering. You are dealing with pains and it's hard to know where to start. And and, 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 and for that, the church comes around you with a big warm hug, but we also know that, that part of that hug that comes around you is to recognize that, that, that sorrow has, it, it's met with the cross of Christ. It's met with the resurrection of Jesus. And he says there in verse 16, a little while you will see me no longer, a little while you will see me 
And, of course, the disciples in this moment are going, okay, what is going on here? What does Jesus mean by all this stuff? Of course, so they're having their own little conversation off to the side here in verses 17 through, uh, what is it, roughly 18. And you'd think by this point in their three-year homage with Jesus that they would have figured it out by now. But um, they, they haven't. Um, they are certain that they know that Jesus is this Messiah that has come. That, that has been pretty much locked up in their heart and mind. And so there's no question about this for them. Um, it's also not a question of actually who Jesus is, but probably the biggest question that they are still wrestling with up until right up until this moment is how? How is Jesus, how is all of this going to come to bear? How is all of this going to take shape for us now? And, for, and how will Jesus bring all this together for us? And so you can think if you're, if you're in Jesus' crew and you've seen all these battles and all these debates and all these things going on with the religious leaders and the Roman authorities, and you're saying mainly religious leaders, you, you just have to know that they're like, okay, they know that there's a big gunfight about to happen, right? That you, you can't like be with Jesus for three years and not see, like, this is, this is heading for something and it, it's probably going to be a bit ugly, and in one sense, that's true, right? Like if you're with Jesus, you're like, okay, I get this. And you're like, okay, this is going to come to a head. It's going to be awesome. Let's just watch Jesus do his thing. But in another sense, they have absolutely no idea what to expect. Because what they're actually going to see take place is not going to comport to what they think is, should happen. That Jesus would be arrested. That Jesus would be tortured. That Jesus would be hung from a cross. And that Jesus would die a real death. That makes no sense to them. In no way did they have this in their minds. Like they had no idea this climactic event, the most climactic event in all of human history was going to happen on their watch. It was not at all what they were expecting. And Jesus is preparing them for that. He knows they know that. He knows that they don't see that. He knows that you and I don't always see what we should see. He knows this. And he's preparing them for this idea so that they will understand that in the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their pain, they'll have context. And when they see that day, three days later, and he's risen from the grave and he's in the room with them and he's sharing a meal with them once again, they'll get it. They can't get it yet. They, they got all the pieces, right? But they can't quite get it all yet. They have to actually be on the other side of the cross before they can actually get it. And Jesus knows that. He's preparing them for this arrest. He's preparing for his trial. He's preparing them for his torture. He's preparing them for his death. And one of the things that we see throughout John is this kind of dual play between these, this idea of that hour. Jesus says, my hour hasn't come, right? And then that day. And in John's mind, the way John kind of uses these two ideas and he interweaves them together is that he, would, he interwebs this idea of like the hour when Jesus dies cannot be disconnected from the hour or from the day in which Jesus comes back triumphantly. And that Jesus rules as king forever and ever and ever. And so this is very characteristic of John's style of teaching. And he bounces back and forth between my hour, Jesus' hour, excuse me, and that day. But what we need to see here is this. We can't disconnect that hour that Jesus has been prepared for. That hour when God would send his son to the dock. That hour, as Peter says in his sermon in Acts 2, God designed. God's the one who designed the idea of the cross for his son Jesus. 
You can't disconnect that hour, those horrendous events, from the hour of his three days later uh, resurrection. You can't disconnect Jesus' hour from a few days later from that, 40 days later, and, 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 and the coming of the Holy Spirit. You can't take the hour of Jesus and disconnect it from the hour or that day when he returns. And he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is now, but he will demonstrate brilliantly when he puts all the nations under subjection under his feet. And the nations will know. So in John's gospel, we see that Jesus is constantly preparing his disciples for that near day, right? That near hour so that they can embrace and enjoy the fullness of that day when he returns, both in this resurrection, but also his return that we're waiting on now. He's doing all of this so he, they can have hope in the midst of their despair, have hope in the midst of their sorrow. Because at this point, the disciples, they haven't put all these pieces together, but they soon will. And so Jesus knows that in their minds, they're debating and they're talking, like, what is Jesus talking about? And so he knows, and it says there in verse 19, he sees this, and, and so he asks them, so is, is this what you're asking yourselves? In a little while, you will not see me. In a little while, you will see me. See, Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's in their minds. And that is both a comforting and alarming truth, isn't it? Alarming in the sense that he knows. He knows you. He knows your deepest despairs. He knows your deepest fears. He knows your deepest sadness. He knows your deepest loneliness. He knows your deepest sins. And so he knows this about his disciples. But it's also comforting in the sense that what freedom that offers us, right? That there's freedom when Jesus truly sees us and jesus truly knows us that that is really the in this one of the most deep one of the deepest longings of the of the human heart of the human life is that we would actually in some existential way be known to be seen and here's the thing our god does see us he, he's seen us all the way from the garden forward and our first parents and he saw them in that garden when they rejected him and they turned away from him and they believed the lie of the serpent. He saw them in their guilt-ridden fear and guilt and, and, sh and pride and shame and their rejection of his rule. He saw them then and he, and he continues to see them in us all the way up until this day. It's beautiful. It's alarming and hope-filled, comforting. And so he responds to them. He says, okay. Let me, let me lay it out for you. You will weep and you will lament. And the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, he says there in verse 20. And your sorrow, though, will turn into joy. See, for a time, God has allowed mankind to hide out in our sin. God has allowed us to hide out in our shame. He has allowed sin to break us down, to destroy us from within. Our sin is not first a behavior problem, but it's a, a deep heart issue, as we all know. And God has allowed us since the garden to sojourn about life in darkness, crafting lives and creating lives by our own hands, as if somehow or another we can do better than what we can under His rule. He's allowed all that to happen, 
But when his redeeming light shines through, as it is right here in this text, and what has done since Christ has come, and has Christ has died on the cross and has resurrected, when light finally breaks through the darkness, as we see back, what by the way, in John 1, it says the, the light came and the darkness could not hide it. That's what we're talking about here. That in Christ, all the light of God has come out and it's bursting through the darkness and it is, it is exposing the darkness and it's, the darkness has nothing to do but flee. And that light brings us, though, unfortunately, to a point of pain. Because when our darkness is, everything is lit up and you see it for what it is, there's like a lot of pain when you see what things actually, how things actually are. Uh, consider the fact that you haven't cleaned your house in about two months. All right? And you walk in one day, you finally have a weekend off, and you have nothing going on because you've been so busy, and you walk in, you're like, oh my word, this place is disgusting. Right? And you just cannot face it. You're like, i got to do something about this. you got to do something about this. Well, that's kind of the idea here. Like when, God, when the light of the gospel shines through, it reveals all of the nastiness that the darkness has been hiding. That's what life is all about. Yeah, I wake up every morning at 5.30, most every morning, not on Sundays. This morning was a weird morning, right? And every morning I wake up, and I bet you feel the same way, the first thing that gets, comes through my head is this. When can I go back to bed? Am I alone in that? If you're a morning person, I'm a morning person somewhat, but come on, don't lie. Like the very first thought that comes to your head is like, I wonder if I can just go in here and make the kids breakfast and they can figure out the rest of it on their own and I can go back to bed. I think I bet this morning now because, you know, I take my son to soccer practice early in the morning at an ungodly hour of the day. Um, but it's not long before I get up and get moving that, that that fleeting thought of I'd just like to go back to sleep goes away. And I start to get optimistic about the day. And it doesn't mean that I don't understand, don't see fully what the challenge of the day will be. But I see what that day is because the light is beginning to go away. I'm sorry, the darkness is about to go away and light is shining for the day. And I've got more hope. I've got more optimism about what the day has to offer me. Well, that's the same thing for those who come to Christ. It's the same thing that happens in light of the gospel. The darkness has to flee, and it's not pretty what we see after the darkness goes away. But because light is shown, hope and optimism actually breaks forth for us. Amen. And it's not that our joy just is completely absent of sorrow. It's not absent of, our, of the struggle, but that it's this joy that is that actually is wed with our sorrow. That in the gospel, that in the resurrection, that when we face these things, what we're finding in our good days and our bad, that, it's, that true joy is wed with sorrow. And it's in that moment that you and I see the gospel most clearly. It's in that moment that you and I get to behold Jesus most, most fully. And that's what Jesus wants us to see here. And this is what he wants his disciples to see. He says, so you will, you will lament, you will weep, and look, I, I want to be honest with you. Like, I, the most mature Christians I know are the ones who embrace this reality. The most immature Christians I know are the ones who don't. Who try to pretend that pain, that life doesn't hurt sometimes. I'm sorry, but it does. And your Christian faith doesn't allow you just to live a some head in the sand kind of thing. Like, it, like life doesn't hurt. It just does. Because until Jesus returns, it's going to. Because this world's still very much at war with God. 
And so some recoil at this idea because they don't like the idea of suffering, as I've already mentioned. Um, But we must embrace our sorrow and our pain as a companion to the joy we have in Jesus. That is what he wants his disciples to see here. Where does that sorrow come from, though? Well, we've kind of hit on it, but let's talk about it. I think um, in a commentary I read this week by Richard Phillips, he outlines five reasons why we have sorrow. I'll say them really quickly. The reason why we have sorrow is one, and why the disciples had sorrow particularly, was because they would see the injustice of what would happen to Jesus, and that would make them very sad. How in the world could someone treat the man like this that way? Two, though, and more importantly, they would see their own sin also contributed to Jesus' death. It's not just, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, point the finger at the big bad world out there, but the gospel doesn't really allow us to do that, does it? The truth of Jesus doesn't really allow it, it makes us kind of take good heart stock here. Look at ourselves, honestly. And so that's one of the reasons why they'll weep and lament. They'll realize that their own sin is responsible for everything that's transpiring here. The third thing, he says, is the thought of being parted from Jesus, even for a minute, is something that's very hard to bear for a true believer in Jesus. Even right now, we don't have Jesus physically in this room, but we have the Holy Spirit. And it would be hard for us to bear life without knowing that Jesus is with us and for us. Amen? And this is what they're wrestling with. And the thought that hostility and the mockery of the world that we receive is sometimes just hard to embrace. It really is. And that's why he says the world will rejoice. Like we see that, right? And for a moment, it does appear like the world won. And if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, this feels like a really good place to put that, right? I'll give you the short story. Aslan, who's the great lion, he is now slain for his people. And the great snow witch thinks, and all of her minions think as they slay Aslan, the great lion, they think what? They won. They're rejoicing. They're having a party out there. If you've seen the movie, you should go see the movie. It's wonderful. And they're partying, and, 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 and over here, others are suffering, crying and weeping about what's happening here. The world's perspective is Jesus is dead. See, he wasn't what we thought he was. He's a good man, maybe. He's a good prophet, a good teacher, but you know, he's dead. He's just like every other guy in the world, but you and I both know that's not true. And we'll prove it here in a few weeks, right? And so we can't stand feeling that way, can we? We can't stand looking at the world's hostility and the world's uh, uh, pseudo-victorious mantra towards us. We, we don't like the fact that we oftentimes feel as Christians weak and frail and like, failures and powerless in the face of our enemies. But friends, what if this is exactly where God wants us? What if it's exactly in that moment that we can see for ourselves as we recognize how frail and incomplete and unable we are to address the issues that we face, but then we are now because of what Christ has done and when when he returns, when he returned gloriously on that resurrection, we can now grasp the enormity of God's power. We can grasp the enormity of his justice, the enormity of his sovereignty, the enormity of the heat that was displayed through his death and resurrection and through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. What if that's all by design? What if your weakness is all by design? I'm not saying, by the way, that that means we're just okay to go sin any way we want to. That's not what we're saying. Your sin is not an excuse to glory in your weakness. 
No, it's actually a way in which you repent and believe and you trust in your Holy Spirit to change you ever so slightly towards the glory of Jesus. Progressively, we say, in the Reformed community. See, our sorrow and pain, it's only temporary. It's only temporary. It's, it, it, it's, it's real, and it lasts for a time, but Jesus will put our sorrow to an end, and he will wipe away every tear from every eye, Revelation 21 tells us. And Jesus says as much as says, your sorrow, you, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Though our sorrow is very deep, Jesus is saying, and it feels like it will never dissipate, Jesus wants us to remember that we have much to rejoice in. Amen? And that our joy is near. And where Richard Phillips gave us in this commentary five um, reasons for our sorrow, he also matches those in the same commentary with five reasons to have joy. Here they are. The resurrection overturns the unjust verdict against Jesus. Our king's victorious. He reigns over the world. And that verdict, that fleeting verdict of human verdict against his life is overturned by his resurrection. Two, the resurrection proves God's acceptance of, his, of the redemption that Jesus achieved. So what Jesus said he was going to do actually is true. When he says you will be saved and you will be with your father forever, he, these are true. Why? Because God accepts the achievements of his son. Three, Jesus' personal presence is restored with his disciples both then, but we are also assured of it here today with the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not alone. Because the resurrection is true, you and I are not alone. And four, the resurrection ensures the conversion of many people across the globe. That means you and I can be assured that our work is not futile. And last, the resurrection enables great joy in the face of our failures and frustrations. In your deepest, on your worst day, the resurrection allows you to take great joy in the work and accomplishments of Jesus. Because death could not hold him. And then Jesus then goes in and uses this wonderful analogy about a woman giving birth. I'll just read it for you. It says, when a woman gives birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but you will see again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This idea of a woman giving birth is a wonderful illustration that Jesus gives us. Couldn't think of anything more beautiful than the process of pregnancy and the process of labor and the process of, of giving birth to a child. And, and what we mean by this is that you and I both know that pregnancy is one of those beautiful times in a, in a, in a, in a woman's life. Most women I know, not all, but most women really enjoy the, the, progress, uh, prog the, the season of pregnancy. Some don't, that's okay. I don't know of a woman who at all loves labor, <laughs> all right? But the fact is, we get to this point and they have this beautiful season of pregnancy and it goes to labor and labor comes in and they are faced with some of the deepest pains of life. There's nothing equivalent, by the way, for a man. Nothing equivalent to this for a man. And all of our women said, amen, right? There's nothing equivalent to this, but there's something though, because here's something that happens. And it's not just because they get to say, oh, I, hey, I got one up on you, big boy. But it's because... They get to experience such extraordinary pain in that delivery. But then there's something that 
both biologically and spiritually happens when that child is born that brings about the greatest, deepest joy and happiness they could ever imagine. That's why Jesus gives us this, this story. Because in the gospel, there's it's utter euphoria. That, that in the midst of our sorrow and suffering, joy comes in the morning because of the resurrection. And you and I now have this wonderful wedding of these two realities and no one else can explain it. No one else can explain it. It's one of the wonderful providences of God in the process of pregnancy and delivery and labor and whatnot. See, the resurrection doesn't extinguish or make void the reality of our sorrow that we experience in this life, which is corroded by sin. But what it does, as I've said many times, it weds our joy to the deepest pains and sorrows this life has to offer. The gospel is not this kind of spiritual escapism that many people like to make it, but it is the power of God to help us get all the way home. All the way home. You're going to stumble, you're going to trip, and you're going to fall, you're going to get skin up. You're going to get hurt, and, 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 and oftentimes you're going to get hurt by your own decision-making, by your own behavior, by your own choices, not by things that are just pressed upon you. And you know what? You have a God who will then meet you right there in the middle of that. Amen. He'll meet you in your deepest, grievous repentance of your sin. He will pick you up. He'll remind you of what he's accomplished, what Jesus has accomplished for you. Again, Richard Phillips, I guess, I'm, he's been so helpful for me this week. He says, this is why when the apostles wrote the epistles regarding Christ's atoning death, they always expressed themselves with wonder and praise and joy. It's not that they no longer felt the anguish of what Jesus suffered, but rather that the resurrection had transformed their very despair of the cross into delight. And God will do the same thing in your pain and suffering. Right now. Your own struggle with sin. He wants you to come to him in this freely, knowing you can go enter into the throne room of grace freely because of what Christ has accomplished for you. And that's our second point. Our access to God cannot be, to hide, cannot, cannot be denied. And that's what we see in verse 23 and 4 and 4. It says here, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. In that day, in that day, it says, in that day, at this point, Jesus is beginning to switch gears. He's taking their attention off of what's going to happen immediately after his arrest and death. And he's going to them now pushing them further down the stream. He's got to connect what's going to happen in his life when they see him die an unjust death. He has to connect that now to now. Here's why, because it happens, here's the hope that you have. He's now punting them towards that day now. What are we looking at here? The Christian needs to always have in view the long game. See, the disciples, just like you and I, get caught up in the short game. We get caught up in the immediacy of the moment. We get caught up in the, in the, in the struggles of right now. Do we not? We get caught up in all these kinds of things and we forget about the big picture of what God is doing. But he's doing something marvelous that we don't always want to see because we're so focused on right now in this very moment how will I pay my bills? How will I be faithful in this world that has so much, that is some, thumbing its nose so much of the things of God? Things of God. It's because we need to focus on the long game. I don't play much golf anymore. 
But one of the things that I'm proud of in my golf game, although I shouldn't be that proud of it, um, is my short game. I'm terrible off the tee. Oh, I can rip it. I can get some distance, but it's like a boomerang and comes right back at me in my face. All right? You know what I'm talking about if you play golf. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm like useless off the tee. But you get me out in the fairway with the fairway wood and the fairway, you know, uh, 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 irons, and I'm decent. I'm pretty accurate. But without a long game, I'm taking a lot more strokes to get to the green, right? When we're so focused on the short game of our lives, we're only focused on this moment, and we're not looking at the long game of what Christ is forming in our lives and what God is doing in our lives. And so this became very, came very face front and center with me the, a couple weeks ago because I hadn't played golf in like four or five years in person. I've been to top golf a few times. And so I went to top golf with a few pastors just for some encouragement. And I get out there, and I'm killing it in my short game. I'm being proud with y'all. I was killing it in my short game. I was running ahead of everybody that day. And here's Jeremy and Jason over here, and they're just crushing it off the tee. They're way behind me in the points. And I'm like, I got these guys. But as the round group's going on, they're getting better in that long game, and they're getting back to the back fence, and they're getting more and more points. And I'm like, I'm going to lose this. See, when we don't have our eyes on the long game, the short game becomes unbearable. It becomes very hard to, 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 to understand we got to look at the long game. And the long game for Jesus, the long game of the Christian life, is that we have access to God through the immediatorial accomplishments of Jesus when he returns to the Father. That's the long game. The long game is you got to have access to God. Right now, right in the middle of all of this, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we have access to God right here and right now. And that work of Jesus ensures that we have, as we plod through this life with filled with all the disappointments and struggles that we face we will arrive all the way home with jesus in his kingdom and he will and when he returns finally to establish that kingdom that we will end up there and that this kingdom this access to god comes with all kinds of benefits jesus says it right here you will ask nothing and whatever you ask of the father ask me of nothing but whatever you ask of the father in my name he will give to you see jesus wants you and i to know that that it's beneficial that he goes on as we saw last week Right? Because when you have that, you have unfettered access to God. And you can go to God, you can ask anything you need in my name. And what that means is we're heirs with God. And we have uninterrupted favor with God. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if in the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you also received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Heirs suffer, but we suffer knowing what the long game is. We suffer knowing that we have access to God in the midst of the suffering and the sorrow. See, Jesus has accomplished for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. And because we are in Christ, we are now children of God, and therefore heirs with God and all the riches of the Father are ours, and we have full access to 
We have nothing to fear approaching his throne of grace. I don't care what you drug in here this morning. If you will repent, acknowledge your sin before God and Father, whatever you've stirred up this week, and I dare say we've all stirred up something, right? You are welcome into the throne room of grace because of what Christ has accomplished for you. Go there, friends. Go there now. Go there today. Don't let another second keep you locked in the shame of sin. You're focusing on the short game, not the long game. Don't focus on the short game. And this is, so it's until this moment that Jesus has been with his disciples, they've had him there, and now he's like, but this is the reason why I go. And he says to you, I'm, it's going to come a day when I'm not going to talk to you in figures of speech. I'm going to talk to you plainly. The hour is coming. I will no longer do this. And it says in verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and I, will, and I do not say that I, will, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, but rather the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from God. In other words, what Jesus says the benefits are, one, ask whatever you will, but also the chief benefit of all is that you're loved by God. Because of the accomplishments of the Son. What other benefit do you need in this life than to know that you are loved by God? To know that He loves you always and forever because of the accomplishments of the Son. In that day, He says, you do, and I do not say that I will ask on your behalf, bro, because the Father loves you. We need to grasp the magnitude of this, friends. If we're going to endure this world as it is right now until Jesus returns, we've got, to wrap, we've got to wrap our minds around the deep, deep love of God for you and I. Amen. And why does the Father love you? It says it right there, because you have loved His Son. And if you love what God loves, God, you, you get the benefit of God's love. Amen? This is why, this is how we have access to God. It's a special love. It's not a general kind of love. It's a love that, that emanates from the affections and pleasures of God towards His Son. Because we have loved and believed in Him, He loves us in this, with the same intensity. And that's what it is. Man. That's as simple as I can make it for the church. That the one thing that we never can ever get beyond is the profound need, the profound desire to love Jesus. When we love Jesus, and as I said earlier, and we love what God, we love what God loves. Right? When we love Jesus, we love what God loves. When we love what God loves, we progressively love what Adam hated. Yes. Man, that's what Adam hated. Oh, I know we don't like to say it that way, but that's what it is. Adam hated by rejecting God. He hated what God loved. And by loving Jesus, we love what God loves, and we also, hate, we also love what Adam hated. We love God's law. We love his blessing. I love um, Vaughn Roberts' little book called The... Uh, the God's Big Picture. It's a wonderful little book about just really understanding the whole framework of the Bible. You should read it. It's one of the best books out there. Oh, so good. But he helps us see that the God has created the world in these three realms of people, place, and rule and blessing. Or rule, right? God's people under God's place, under God's rule and blessing. You've heard me say this before. When you and I love Jesus... We love what God loves. We love God's people. We love God's place that he's putting his people in. And we love his rule over our life. And we can't get enough of his blessing either. God loves you and he wants you to have the full storehouse of his blessings under his rule. And it's because of that. 
Our last point, our peace is sure. Why? Because Jesus conquered the world. See, you see how these all connect? Your sorrow give way to joy. And because your sorrow give joy, you will recognize you have full access to God. And because you have full access to God, your peace will be sure because Jesus has conquered the world. Jesus says there in verse uh, 28, I- I've come, I've done what the Father said, told, done what the Father told me to do, now go back to the Father. Jesus is now bringing him back to that same point. And he's just basically telling them there in that verse 28 that he's come, he's accomplished all that the Father sent him to do, and now he's going to go back and he's going to, him and his Father, we're going to watch all of that redemptive work come to bear. It's all going to come together. He's going to watch all those strands that have been placed into order throughout human history that God has put in there by his wonderful providence, and he's going to pull all those strands together, and all that work of redemption just comes to bear. It's like seeing all the tapestry just being pulled together into this beautiful, beautiful picture. And that's what, the Father's, that's what Jesus is doing as he stands beside the, at the right hand of his Father in heaven. He's watching it all unfold. He's accomplished everything the Father said. He's doing it. And he's watching the Holy Spirit go to work. And so the disciples think, oh man, we get it now. We see, oh yeah, now you're talking plainly. Now we're getting what you're laying down, Jesus. And I love what Jesus says. He's like, oh, you think you got it? You can't get it. And as I said earlier, you can't, they couldn't get it until they're on the other side of the cross. And so for them to sit here and say they got it seems kind of funny to me. And so Jesus comes in and says, oh, so now you believe? Do you believe now? Behold, he says, the hour is coming. Indeed, the hour has come when you will be scattered, each from his own town, and will leave me alone. So you think you know what Jesus is talking about? When the hour comes, Jesus says, when that hour comes, you will see a side of life, he's telling the disciples, that you never thought you would see. You will scatter, you will abandon me, you will see all the things the world wants to do to me. I will be alone from the worldly perspective, but I won't be alone. I will be with the Father, the Father will be with me. See, the disciples will experience not only the injustice of seeing what will happen in Jesus, but as we see with Peter, they will see that their own complicity with it. Again, we don't, can't just look at all the big, bad, evil guys out there and say, oh, they're the problem. Like, no, 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 no. We've got to look in the house. And the disciples need to look in the house because they're, be, they're just as much guilty of their own weakness and their own failures and their own sins. Again, we'll look at that in chapters 18 and 19 here in a couple weeks. He says, I'm not alone, though, for the Father is with me. I love that. I love that. I mean, it appears that Jesus is alone, but he's not alone. The Father is with him. And that's why we don't say when he's on the cross, and he says, oh, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? As somehow or another, as one of our songs says, that he's turned his face away from his son. No, he's not turning his face away from his son. No, that would void what Jesus is saying here. No, Jesus knows the intimacy of his Father right all the way through the cross. Amen. Right through the cross. That his Father looked down on him with pleasure about what his Son was accomplishing in that moment. He looked down on his Son. He doesn't say he's turned his face away. No, it's just, the Father loves, the Father loves in, his love is in Christ displayed. He loves in Christ displayed. This is what the Father takes great joy in. It was the Father who orchestrated the cross, not anyone else. 
And so it's not that, the, that Jesus feels some kind of void between him and the Father. No, he felt deeper communion with his Father in those moments. And why is that important for us? Because if in the worst moment of Jesus' life, he felt the communion with his Father, when he, uh, by his own accomplishments, makes us ha- can, helps us have, uh, grants us access to God himself, guess what happens in our worst moments of life? The Father will be with us too. See? He's telling them that even though I'll be alone, I won't be alone. And neither will you. Neither will you. You won't be alone. Romans 8 again, verse 37 through 39. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or death nor anything else in creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the wonderful news of having access to God that in the worst day we have peace with God because Christ has conquered the world. He spared the cross. He bared the shame but he had the pleasure of his Father in heaven the entire time. And because of what he accomplished, you and I have the full merit of that accomplishment for us. Right? Isn't that amazing? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So this morning, I just have a couple questions for you and we'll finish up. Are you despairing today? Are you despairing this morning? Do you ever find yourself in those places where you're despairing and you're just... You know, you feel off. Maybe it's a day, two, week, month, year. It's okay. You're not alone. If you're in Christ, you're not alone. Second question. Are you feeling lonely this morning? Are you feeling lonely? Your Father loves you, and you have access to Him. Your Father loves you, and you have access to him. Third and last question. Are you struggling with your peace this morning? Perhaps you have an area of, of sin in your life that has just been eating you alive. If you're struggling with peace this morning, know that your Savior conquered sin and death for you so that you may live at peace both with yourself, but most importantly, with God. Amen? Father, help us this morning as we...